If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 4th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud, since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our first show of the new year. It's a cacophony of personal reflections, stories of truth to power regarding sexuality, and even some moments of fun, starting with Angela Brown and The Devil. I'd lie in bed, the smell of snowball blossoms drifting into the room, the sheets dampened with sweat from my nine-year-old body, waiting for him to come, to fly through the window as I had imagined him for the past seven weeks. Not a man, not a human, the devil himself. Icicle, icicle. Where are you going? Where are you going? Icicle, icicle, where are you going? I have a hiding place when spring marches and Will you keep watch for me? I hear them calling Gonna lay it down Gonna lay it down My love affair with the devil erupted when Julie Mitchenfelder joined my fourth grade class. She had big ears and sweet brown eyes and long blonde hair. She had Jan's book smarts and Marsha's good looks. Quiet, gentle, funny. And above all, she didn't call me fat ass. I fell instantaneously in love with her. We shared a love for Andy Gibb and Three Musketeers bars. I always had a thing for the new kid, seeing them as a blank slate on which I would write the possibility of friendship. I never had a crush on a girl before, except for Goldie Hawn on Laugh-In, which was a bit more like a strange vibration right below my stomach. My attraction for Julie meant two things. One, I was going directly to hell. Two, I didn't want it to stop. I hadn't figured out why I was going to hell, and I didn't know why loving another girl was wrong. I didn't even know what the word gay meant. But my father, a Baptist minister, 
had drummed a bunch of Christian nonsense into me, and I knew a girl could never marry a girl, so I must be going to hell for this. I must be going to hell for this. My anxieties swelled when the next-door neighbor girl, Dee Dee, informed me that since I was unbaptized, the devil could take over my body at any point. What did that mean, take over my body? I'd lie in bed, terrified and excited about his arrival and what he had in store for me. Cherry-skinned, perspiring, sexy. The devil was everything I wanted and everything I was afraid to want. He made me slip my hand down there. He made me think of Julie. He made my mother turn the vacuum cleaner on at exactly the right moment. Or maybe that was God. Getting off, getting up, while they're all downstairs. Singing prayers, sing away. He's in my pumpkin PJs. After a few weeks, with no calling card from the devil, I grew agitated. He would make everything right. He would let me know that hell was an okay place that I shouldn't be concerned. One night, my mother and I were wheeling our cart filled with Little Debbie snack cakes, Coke, and Clorox through the aisles of Kmart. We passed a 99-cent bin brimming with faux wood shepherd's prayers. My mother fingered the discounted items, extracting the one she would tack up on our kitchen wall. Something about the placement of these items next to a slew of Three Musketeers bars set me off. I spent the rest of the summer cussing out God in my head, spouting, Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Blank you, God! Followed by, I'm sorry, I'm sorry! Over and over again. This would go on for 30-minute stretches at 8 to 10 times a day. My mental activity was similar to that of an obsessive-compulsive counting the thousands of pills in the carpet, or to my mother wildly scrubbing the barbecue grill with a wire brush at 4 a.m. I had to cuss out God and I had to apologize. If I didn't apologize, I was going to hell. The idea that one could buy religion for the same price as four nougaty chocolate bars spurred a tornado of blasphemy and anger in me. It also made me want to kiss Julie on the mouth. Sometime later, I was watching the Joker's Wild and he appeared. Not Jack Barry, the stern host, but the devil himself. In the final round, a contestant pulls a lever on a big slot machine. To win the grand prize, usually a Chevy Nova, three Jokers must appear. At which point, Mr. Barry yelps, Joker! 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 A typist from Reseda was up $350 when smirking Satan crashed her party. Dejected, she left the stage. She had only won a Montgomery Ward gift certificate, but I had won my freedom. He had come, the devil, and I was unscathed, untouched. He hadn't taken over my body. If he had, it sure felt nice every time Julie brushed against me in the cafeteria line. I still curl up under the covers at night, waiting for him to come. But this time, I want to thank him, or just say hi. Father Lucifer, you never look so sane. You always did prefer the drizzle to the rain. Tell me that you're still in love with that milkmaid. How the Lizzie's, how's your Jesus Christ been hanging? 
Next up, Arnold Pomeranch shares a life. This year, in July, I'm going to be 69 years old. And sometimes looking at the people around me, I feel I'm as old as dirt. I was born in the Bronx, first generation. When my mother saw me and saw those curls, I was dubbed the Shirley Temple of the Bronx. And she never dissuaded people who thought I was a girl. Ma, how could you? I grew up with parents who argued a lot, who loved and cared about each other. And as early as I could remember, my mother used to pray that I would get married and give her grandchildren. So my early images were living in the suburbs, which was Long Island, if you lived in New York, with a white picket fence and having a wife. And then something happened. I started playing doctor in the apartment house that I lived in. When it was a rainy day, there were no video games. It was the 30s. And we'd peek at each other's parts, the guys and the gals. And I remembered the guys. It was very vividly. I could remember over 60 years ago Stanley Gross's butt in the back of the stairs and Cortona Parkway in the Bronx. And I didn't know anything about sex, obviously, but I was attracted to him and couldn't understand it. And I didn't even know what the word phase was, but that's probably what I thought. Arnold, it's a phase. And when I grew older, I saw that the way to get some kind of notoriety, the way to get acceptance was to date the prettiest girls. And I know you look at me now and I'm no hair and a gut, but I was a dude before the word even was invented. I was a dude and I overcompensated for that feeling that I had that never went away, that I was attracted to men. But this was at a time when in my community where you could be a thief or even a murderer or a womanizer, and somehow you were grudgingly respected by the people in the community. But to be, in Yiddish, the word was fegala. To be a fairy was something that was just such an object of ridicule that I just never wanted to be a fairy. Although I'm sure that a lot of aspects of how I acted were probably like a fairy. I was certainly a confirmed sissy. I didn't play with the rough kids. I played with the nerdy kids. And long hair, you know, it was something that I learned to deal with. And then I'm dating and go to school and join a social fraternity and become the social chairman so I could get the pick of the prettiest gals and even attempted to be intimate with women. But the passion that I thought would be there wasn't really there for me. What was there was the feeling that my friends are going to be very impressed that I dated the prettiest gals. And then, I don't know what possessed me, on a lone weekend I went out to Fire Island, which was a haven for gays. And for the first time I went into a gay bar in a place called Cherry Grove from Fire Island. First time in my life in a gay bar. And I looked around and I says, no, there are gonna be no more sissies. I want another dude. I wanted somebody who was really masculine and virile. And there he was and we lived together for 15 years. And like a, a real brave kid, I had to run away from home. I couldn't live with him in the city. I wasn't out to my parents. I wasn't even out to my friends. It was my secret. Now, it's the 50s, and there's a senator from Wisconsin 
Joe McCarthy, who is just vicious with berating and downsizing and ostracizing all of his enemies by calling them gay. And so where do you go? You go to California. I ran away with my new lover, my mate, my significant other, call it what you will. We went to La La Land. We went to the land of fruits and nuts. And we settled in to L.A. and I got a job in the shoe business. And I loved doing that, but I was very, very closeted. I led, I think it was a show on called Herb Philbrick, who was a, you know, a double agent. And that's how I felt. And I got away with it. I was good at it. I was good at lying. And I don't think anybody suspected. I dated women. I had my beards for all the social events that I needed, but I came home to my man. And then I got a job at Payless Shoe Source. You could pay more, but why? And I became the patron, the boss, the jefe. This was really it for me. I had 10,000 people working for me, 600 stores. In the meantime, I got a new significant other. We're going to be celebrating 22 years. So I'm into long-term relationships. And here we are in the corporate office. People call me boss or jefe or patron. And in the corporate office, our office here, everybody had pictures on their desks, all the people who worked for me, wives, husbands, kids. And my desk had the greatest collection of pictures of shoes because I had a man at home that I didn't have the courage to fight the system, to come out. And nobody was coming out at that time. And I didn't feel it was appropriate. I was so good at being deceptive. I guess I invented the closet and I loved being in it and didn't feel any kind of pang of conscience and wasn't even aware of activism around me. And then I guess it was God in her infinite wisdom struck me down. I got sick. I needed a liver transplant and I was a B negative. I was a rare blood type. And fortunately, Somebody on a weekend, weekends are great for donor contributions. Dr. Alan Hoffman harvested a B-negative liver for me from a woman, a young, healthy woman who died on a weekend crash in Bakersfield, which was nearby. And it was interesting that when I was recovering in intensive care, I was told that only significant members of the family could visit. And I really had a lie to get my significant other in. And I think now I am such a activist for gay marriage, not because I want to get dressed in a wedding dress or to have a, a wedding cake with two male figures on it, but I want part of the 4,000 rights that married couples have that we have only a few of. Uh, I wasn't conscious of it then. I did ultimately get back to work but I realized that I was deceptive, that I was truly living a lie, that I had a chance to be open and out and started coming out to my family. In fact, my parents now are long gone, so I had to write letters to my deceased parents to come out to them, although I thought my mom always really knew. Coming out to my niece and my sister, and they would say, oh, Uncle Arnold or Brother Dear, we, it's about time. We knew all the time. What a relief. And eventually left work because in my early 60s, when I thought I would be revered and people would sit at my feet and appreciate my experience, 
Forget about it. I was just outdated. It, I was Neanderthal. It was Jurassic Park. I was a, a dinosaur. And I went out in the world and I tried to recreate myself. I met a guru, Ma Jaya Sati Bhagwati, Joycey Green, the Jewish lady born in Brooklyn. And Ma, as she is known as, said, in order to reach God, you have to serve. And what I started to do was serve, serve the homeless, serve the dying, serve AIDS patients. And I was able to recreate my life. And then I joined Glide. Glide is an independent speakers group called Gays and Lesbians Initiating Dialogue for Equality. We're invited to schools, campuses, and colleges, uh, temples, churches, anybody who wants to speak about homophobia and the stereotypes of gays and lesbians. So here I was, a closeted Fagala from the Bronx, and I overcompensated. I came out and became an old fart activist. I just love doing it. And each time I speak at schools and colleges and sometimes in front of a, what looks like a hostile kind of audience. When I was a kid, I would run from some of these guys. And there I am in their face introducing myself and telling them who I am, that I am gay, almost like an AA meeting. My name is Arnold, and I'm 69 years old, and I'm a homosexual. And I'm proud and fulfilled that I'm able to make up for what I kept in the closet so long. I'm not that good at Judaic law, but I know there's something called tikkun olam, and that is for Jews or for people everywhere to work toward repairing a healing world. That if you can open the light in one dark corner, if you can heal one wounded soul, it is if you heal the entire world. And that's what I am doing. Call me a Hindu or what. I'm out there and I'm doing it. And I am glad that at 69, I am looking forward to the next decade. Next, Michael Dixon is coming out. How I had to come out was a very different place for me. I first had to come out with my gender identity, and that was the toughest issue because you're basically talking about an entire transition of life. I knew that it would affect my entire family, uh, my wife, my son, my mother, all those who knew me in a very, very dramatic way. So it was not an easy decision to make. It was never a choice, though. It was just not an easy decision to make because it would have far, far lasting ramifications. When I finally came to terms with what my gender identity was, that I was really a woman, and I always had been, there came a point where you just could not contain it. The girl came out just like too far, and I could no longer put her away. And I, had, I came out to my wife, which was a very, very difficult time after uh, many, many years of, of a very good marriage, and I knew that that would probably end the marriage. She was great, very, very tearful explanation of what I felt, and in many ways it began to make a lot of sense to her at that time, all the little things that had gone on between us, and the realization that we had always been girlfriends more than husband and wife through that marriage. We did not stay together. It was a relief, and we are best of friends at this point in time. Now with my son, it was a different situation. We waited for him to get to a point in his life where he was secure with his sexuality, where he was clear with his gender identity, and we explained it to him. We sat him down one day. I sat him down and said, I have something to tell you. And of course he thought I was going to say, I'm gay. 
as some of his friends had said, uh, had, whose fathers were gay, and he enjoyed them very much because he said they were great cooks and everything else. So he was like, oh, wow, cool, my dad's going to be gay. And then I told him what it really was, how I felt, where I needed to go, and that I was still the same person, but I was going to be probably a better person, a more rounded and gifted person, and I'd always be there for him. It was a very another diff difficult time of coming out in, in a very sincere manner. We always raised him to be a very liberal and open person, a very caring and kind person. He's got a great heart. And it took him a while to figure that one out, mull it around. And he came back and said, and he still calls me dad today, that's fine. I still love you. And uh, you'll always be the same person you always were. So it's not a big deal. That's cool. Now, my mother wasn't so good about that. She still has problems, but she's coming along. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the workplace issues, because that was a big challenge. I'd worked with a number of people in a very high-profile place, and they always knew me as this very overt, masculine person. And with, But I had a little different swing, and they knew that, and they just couldn't quite figure it out. So when I finally did tell my coworkers that I was going to change over, and it wasn't something I could just say, you know, I'm going to change over and nobody's going to know. It was going to be very, very visible. They were all shocked, but they were also very taken by the fact that they had seen telltale signs and they just couldn't, make, they just couldn't put their finger on what the deal was. They knew I had a very feminine side to me, but at the same time I had this other, other way about me. It was a difficult one, though. There was people who came up to me and just really openly accepted it right off the bat, and then there was those many others who did not. And a friend that I had 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 coffee with every morning for 15 years, all of a sudden would not have coffee with me. That was very hurtful, but life goes on. And there was many, many more to offset that. But I was successful in the workplace and I made the transition. So I always tell people who ask me that, that they say they'll never, they never can transition in the workplace. They can never come out as transgendered in the workplace. I always say, no, never say never, because it is possible. If I did it, you can do it. Some question has been around my sexual orientation, and, and that really hasn't been a big thing for me as far as coming out, because I didn't really have to come out with my sexual orientation. I didn't have to come out to myself. I didn't have to come out to others. Well, in a way, I had to come out to others, but not to myself. I always loved women. I always had girlfriends, and so guess what? My sexual orientation didn't change. I still do. I'm lesbian today. My label changed. I was straight before. Today, I'm lesbian. But coming out to the gay community was probably the more difficult process in that even to this day, I still get questions. Here I am, a female, lock, stock, and barrel in the gay community, and I get questions from the gay community from both sides. You know, what's my orientation? Do I like men? You know, is that what I might... And I say, well, if I like men, then that would make me straight, wouldn't it? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, I'm lesbian, and I've been very clear about that. The lesbian community has had a very difficult time with that process, unfortunately. And I hope that someday they can maybe come around on it and say, you know what, I'm just as much of a woman as you are. You know, I don't care how you spell it, Y-N-E-N, I don't care how you spell it, I am just as much of a woman as you are. I have the same feelings, I have the same tears, I have the same ambitions that you do. I live in the same world as you do. Let me come out. Let me be a lesbian. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Pioneering journalist Deb Price, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 
1992, the Detroit News featured a column about a woman's plight in introducing the woman she loved to her boss. It was titled, So Tell Me America, How Do I Introduce Joyce? It was the first installment in a nationally syndicated column on gay issues by Deb Price, and America's first look at gay issues from a true insider. Her column was quickly picked up by other newspapers and got national media attention on Oprah and Donahue. In 1995, Price reported that presidential frontrunner Bob Dole was the first Republican to accept funds from a gay group, which prompted the return of the contribution. The controversy made front-page news across America. Understandably, the Washington Post called Price one of the most high-profile lesbians in the news business. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dick Matthews, in Goshen, Virginia. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed, so pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you are listening to IMRU Radio. Next up, Charlie Bauer shares his audio essay, The Gay Gulag. When I started to write about this, Russia was ducking and diving with its ideology around all things gay based around what people will or won't be allowed to do at the Sochi Olympics. Who would have thought that the gay agenda would have risen quite so much during the run? I was first and last in Russia in 1997 for three long, miserable months. On my free days, I'd wander around the gum store opposite the Kremlin and observe the immaculate storekeepers guarding a single toaster in a display case. Back then, this is what the new economy is represented for this country, a beige toaster. This, to them, was Western aspirationalism. It was also the time when America was tentatively dipping its toes into the emerging Russian economy. Occasionally, in the banya, I'd listen to the tales of woe from the American businessmen who just managed to hand over every cent of their investment to the Siberian Mafia. The entire country, it seemed, was operating a huge scam. For two months, I researched any form of gay activity and hit Iron Curtain after Iron Curtain. Eventually, I broke down and pleaded with the receptionist behind the front desk of the Metropole Hotel, where I was interned for the duration of my stay. Since I was a foreigner and paying in dollars, I was allowed special privileges. She looked over both shoulders, winked, and slid me a piece of paper, telling me to make sure that I went with a driver in case I needed a quick getaway. That Friday evening, I arrived at the Three Monkeys, Moscow's, nay, Russia's first ever gay club. Situated in the upstairs of what looked like a suburban house, the place was packed with everyone bouncing along to a miasma of retro hits, including Dean Martin and the Shangri-Las. What was most interesting, though, because there was no real queer history throughout communism, was the clientele. Noticeably that everyone was aged between mid-teens and early 70s in a completely even mix. In one corner, I saw the hotel receptionist smoking a huge Cuban cigar in the company of a group of older women, cigar smoking apparently a public sign of lesbianism. Images of Beryl Reed and Susanna York swirled around my head, and I immediately fell in love with this innocent heaven. It occurred to me that there were no real distinctions at the Three Monkeys. 
Here, there were no pre-Soul Western conventions, no gay histories of coloured hankies, no sexual style definitions, no transgender divides, and no David Bowie. Just a burgeoning new identity and a community without a blueprint. This was something I'd never seen before. While the 20th century liberated the West, here the closet stretched out as long as Perestroika allowed it. These people had invented this culture themselves, a culture with no exclusivity or clique so prevalent in Western sophistication. Here, in Russia of all places, were the freest gay people I'd ever come across. I raised a toast of neat vodka with the receptionist and felt the most liberated I felt in my life. Now Russia has resorted back to its dark past, not its communist past. It would never give up those Western aspirations and luxuries for anyone. It needs the money, so its self-deception now runs even deeper. Stalin slid genocide behind communism without a care of what the world thought about it. Putin cannot. And he and his church-funded regime are now fully exposed. We only hope that, as Russia falls, he will start to weaken, but no longer at the expense of human rights. When I first wrote about Sochi for the British press, the rules were bending on a daily basis. One week Putin attempted to ease concerns that the new anti-gay laws will be used to punish athletes who display rainbow colours at the event. Later, he insisted that gay people were not discriminated against in Russia, and that he sometimes even awarded them with prizes and decorations. He then went on to mention Tchaikovsky and the fact that they all love his music. But it's true. Those videos we're seeing from the garden squares and the prospects showing gay and trans people being beaten by local hooligans are very real. But as they say, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. The sheep, in this case, will be Putin's hooligans, hot on the heels of the Russian church. Next, with a tale from Abby Dees, we travel to Big Sur. My partner and I spent a few days in Big Sur, the jewel of the California coast. We hoped we might slough off some accumulated stress and maybe, maybe, detach from the chatter and whirr of our daily lives. It seemed to work. With meandering creeks and ancient redwoods on one side and an impossibly huge expanse of Pacific Ocean on the other, Big Sur invited us to do nothing but sit and soak it in, first staring one way, then the other, and back again. The awesomeness, and I mean that in its original non-Kardashian sense, defied words, except for, you know, awesome. There was only silence between the two of us, broken up by the occasional and feeble, God, aren't we lucky to be here? At an overlook, I even said this to a total stranger who replied, I was just thinking that, what a blessing. Sure, you can spend massive amounts of money for a cliffside room in Big Sur, but you don't need to. A car, a day off, and a willingness to accept whatever the day presents is pretty much all any Californian needs to be reminded of why everyone has heard of our state. Now, I'm a lifelong Californian, and this was only my second time in Big Sur. I'm an idiot, but that's not quite my point. Perhaps my point is, rather, that though there are few places grander on earth, Big Sur reminded me that moments of appreciation for life's gifts are available all the time if I'd only summon the comparatively paltry energy to seek them out. In short, 
It's not the view, but my willingness to see it. In the midst of our gee whiz reverie, I got an email from a friend we both love very much. He described in detail his regret about the lost opportunities of his life, and he despaired that the choices he made didn't pan out as planned. His boyhood dreams mock him now. We wondered how he would have felt if he were sitting there with us, watching the sun go down. Would it be as bad? It's not that we didn't take his sadness seriously. We did. Our hearts ached for him, and if we could have magically changed the past, we would have. But here we were, with dramatic proof that regardless of every hurt and insult, for most of us, it is possible at least, to make the choice to stop, breathe, and experience beauty. It's there for the taking. Our friends still possessed the power of choice, and much more too. Security, health, freedom, and the love of some people in his life. Though much still lies ahead of him, I sensed that he could only see the past, which I do not deny was marked by injustice and pain. I know, though, that he is still a fortunate man. Really, my only wish for him is that he could feel it every once in a while, as Tracy and I did that week in Big Sur, and as we vowed to stop and notice more often, even when we're not in places that practically hit you over the head with something to be grateful for. Since this essay is supposed to have an LGBT theme, I'll now try to share what I think any of this has to do with our community. We're nowhere near where we know we should be when it comes to civil rights. In some places in the world, we're even going backwards. Russia, Nigeria, I'm talking to you. Many of us are still isolated in unsupportive communities or shunned by the very people we love. We should be fighting any urge to rest on the laurels of our latest amazing victories, and there have been a few. Gratitude for what's good, however, is something else entirely. To everyone, every day, whoever summoned the courage to stand up for justice, even when things appeared hopeless, I truly thank you for the freedom I too often take for granted. To every parent who chose to embrace your LGBT kid, even if you didn't understand the LGBT part, I thank you for tilting the universal scales a little more towards love. No matter what lies ahead, good or bad, may we all feel loved, blessed, fortunate, lucky, whatever you want to call it, and awed by the simple beauty of life on a regular basis. A few years ago, IMRU was co-sponsor of a senior storytelling competition organized by former Advocate magazine editor Anne Stockwell at the LA LGBT Center. It was called Hear Me Out, and one of the competitors named TC shared this offering in the category of family. My mother left rural Arkansas when she was 14 years old. She was tired of picking cotton. She moved to Los Angeles, stayed with a cousin, and found a job. About a year later, she met my father, Willie. And the next year, she had my sister at 17. I followed three years later. One night, my father came home one more time, drunk again. They fought. She was tired of fighting. She waited till he passed out. She tied him up. She beat him, packed our bags, and we left, and we never went back. That was the kind of woman my mother was. I remember growing up, there was always something to do. She made things. 
She sewed all of our clothes, cooked all of our food. She taught us how to garden. She made arts and crafts. These were the things that I remember about her. My mother was really no nonsense. She didn't take any mess. I remember once my sister got into an argument with a boy in the neighborhood and his older sister came to help him. And my mother came outside and she said, this is a kid's fight. And if you get into it, I'm gonna get into it. So I always felt like she was this person that was strong, was always willing. You know, we all had chores in the house. We all had things that we had to do, cook, clean. She taught us how to garden, how to grow things. And if you heard those heels clicking on a Saturday morning, <laughs> that meant we were washing walls and cleaning baseboards, you know. She was the kind of lady that always told us the truth, whether we were doing well or whether we weren't doing well, you know. Um, her line to me was, the more money you make, the more you spend, the less you accomplish. <laughs> she told my brother, you're my son and I love you, but I don't like you very much. <laughs> and my sister had a baby pretty early and she was still young and she wanted to party, she wanted to do things and she didn't want to pay rent. And my mother demanded, if you were old enough to have a child, then you're old enough to take care of it. So you need to pay rent. And she went to her and she said, well, I don't have the rent money. I have to pay my car note. And she said, well, you and that pretty little baby could go sleep in your car. <laughs> so she was always straightforward. You know, we grew up as the house where all the kids played. My mother would do serendipitous arts and crafts in the summertime and have all the kids come over. We would go to the local park and swim for the summer. We would get in our Ford station wagon and drive to the beach, to the mountains. So she was always trying to expose us to new things. She turned 40, she found a lump in her breast and brought us all together and explained what was happening. It was really, really sad for all of us and really, really frightful because she was the only person that we had at that time. So she had a mastectomy and everything went well for 10 years and then it came back. And this time it didn't leave. It ravaged her body. It broke her down. We became the caregivers. But she never lost her spirit. We are all a part of who she is. Strong, willful, honest, and always of service to others. That was my mother, Rosie Mae Miller. She was my guide. She was my friend. She was my champion. Next. Another audio essay from Hear Me Out. This one from a gentleman named Jack. Howdy, I'm Jack Tangle. My story has to do with a forgotten aspect of the gay world. Both men and women during the Depression who were forced to go out on the road, often traveling with a partner, and about coming out, my coming out, and sometimes finding some nice surprises when you do. The first time I saw you, I was drawn by your powerful, scrubby handsomeness, and Irish laughter. You shook hands with me, serious-like, probably the first adult to do that, and I was struck silent in your radiant beam. After supper, the man and I managed to tag along, all gathered in the living room with granddad holding center in his big old leather wing chair. You sat on the new blue sofa, the one we kids were forbidden to approach, and said, come young fellow, join me. As the visit began, you took a small pack of tobacco out of your pocket and started rolling a cigarette with one hand. I was amazed. 
A little catching up and family history soon gave way to brandy relaxation. And you started stories of telling about being out on the road, sometimes recent, sometimes going back to the time of the Great Depression. After a while, you took out a $100 bill from your pocket and started rolling it back and forth, back and forth in your huge calloused palms. I was cobra tranced and probably did a bad job of not staring. But I was quiet, very quiet, not wanting for an instant to derail any fragment of a story. The stories were always far away and full of haphazard life and dangerous near misses. You told at that time you were riding the overloaded construction train and found yourself pinned between overhanging timbers as the train went into a turn. And slowly, slowly, the timbers started pressing against your chest, pressing the life out of you as you screamed into the clatter of the night. I remember breaking the vow of silence only once when mom came out with our coats to leave. Abandoning shame, I begged the end of the story. And you, perhaps to spare my humiliation, told of how slowly the pressure eased as the train pulled out of the curve and you were saved and left feeling foolish. Many years later, after you passed on, it was told how you had grandma sew that soft $100 bill into the collar of your shirt. Safekeeping for the road, you said. When I came out to my family, my mother told me in hushed tones, son, you know, Uncle Jim, the one that was a drifter and a bit of the black sheep of the family, well, he was that way too. Now, many years later, when I think back, I think of that visit as a gift to me. Thank you. Next, we'll take a quick break. Don't touch that dial. Larry Kramer acts up again, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On March 24, 1987, 250 AIDS activists stormed Wall Street, protesting the high price of antiviral drugs and the Reagan administration's failure to address the AIDS crisis. They laid down in the intersection of Wall Street and Broadway, blocking traffic. 17 were arrested. The protest was the first of many actions led by the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, otherwise known as ACT UP. Their slogan was, Silence Equals Death. In one of the group's early protests, it covered Jesse Helms' home in a giant condom. ACT UP marked its 20th anniversary in March 2007 with hundreds of protesters heading to Wall Street to demand a single-payer health care system and drug price controls. Among the protesters was none other than Larry Kramer, who co-founded ACT UP in 1987. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and is recorded here in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and is read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, I'm Nathan Maskey, the founder of I'm From Driftwood, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Next up, perhaps our favorite storyteller, Peter Dell, is paying for it. I remember feeling like I needed it. Maybe it was the action of going to buy the Playgirl, which would finally prove to myself, really show my core, that I was gay, and that it wasn't just curiosity. 
but I do know it was the first thing I ever did out of my own desire. Buying the magazine was the first time I allowed myself to fantasize without shame. We were on our summer vacation in Calistoga. It was the first family trip without my brother. My dad, my mom, and I took the drive up the coast to the northern California city. It was the second or third day of the trip that I realized I needed the magazine. I remember thinking, now is the perfect opportunity to do it. You're out of town, no one you know is here. I don't remember anymore how I convinced them that I should go alone to the Santa Rosa Mall, this 13-year-old boy. But I was both resourceful and paranoid, and somehow I made it work. We would go Saturday, the last day of our trip. So there I was, this 13-year-old gay kid with three hours to kill in this strange city at this great mall with 50 stores. The only thing I could think about, though, was that damned magazine, the one with the hairy-chested fireman on the covers I'd seen as I passed the newsstand. straight for the B. Dalton on the first floor, the one right by the entrance. Too many people. The three guys browsing at the magazine rack wouldn't leave. I cut my losses, moved on. Walden Books, second floor, next to the hot dog on a stick. Magazine rack, penthouse, hustler, playboy. No, playgirl, not anywhere. This store's empty too, damn, need to move on. Back to B. Dalton. empty now. Only the clerk and me. He's reading something, not paying attention. I reach up quickly and grab the magazine, roll it into the tightest tube that I can. I take it to the counter for the final, brutal part, the part I've envisioned all week, the part which has kept me away from buying Playgirl for years. I set the magazine on the counter in front of the clerk, face down. The clerk, a pudgy guy three times my age, picks up the magazine, turns it over, and looks for the price. Then he saw the title. He looked at me, looked at the title, looked at me, looked at the title. His head didn't move, only his eyes. He frowned. Then I said the line I had been rehearsing all week, the line that was supposed to take away all the awkwardness, the words which would make everything seem so normal. Funny what they make you buy on a scavenger hunt. He didn't buy it. Not for a second. The frown didn't become a smile like I had pictured. If anything, it deepened. Our eyes met and neither of us moved. We both knew the truth. Or maybe only he did.
the moment broke. He looked down to scan the magazine into the cash register, and I realized I could breathe again. I sucked in air like a drowning man surfacing. He was going to go along with me. He wasn't going to call the cops, or worse yet, my parents. My scavenger hunt plan hadn't worked. Human kindness had prevailed. I paid the man and thanked him. He never said a word to me. As I grabbed the opaque bag, he smiled a distant, polite smile that screamed, It's your life, kid. I spent the remaining two hours, 45 minutes, in a stall in the upstairs men's room, reading the Playgirl, and, yes, looking at the pictures of naked men. The editor's column that month was addressed to gay men who she said comprised 10% of the Playgirl readership. And I knew now that I wasn't part of the other 90%. Next, Wenzel Jones goes straight to Vegas. I was mistaken for a heterosexual once. A friend of mine, Janet, was getting married in Las Vegas. As she married later in life and had little family to speak of, it was to be a merry affair at a pirate-themed hotel with Janet's vast circle of friends discharging most of the duties. I was assuming the role of the father of the bride, since the actual one was dead, and my friend Patty, a woman of voluptuous proportions, was stepping in as maid of honor, or matron of honor, or whatever you call the woman with two marriages under her belt who had not yet leapt into her third. Patty and I were traveling on a Southwest Companion ticket, so we had to travel together. As Patty's 20th high school reunion was on the night of Janet's marriage, I had to leave with her soon after the wedding ceremony, and there was no time to get out of our wedding togs, which is how we came to be standing in McCarran Airport. All confirmed passengers should now be boarding at gate number D. I in my natty, rented, charcoal-gray tux, Patty in a smart, albeit restrictive, pink suit, the jacket of which clearly illustrated the expression 10 pounds of bologna in a 6-pound bag. Mind you, the girls had already escaped their confinement once that day, just before the ceremony, in fact, so they were being restrained by the merest of safety pins. This is not a salient point, I just want to draw you the picture here. It was my first time traveling in formal wear, and I thought it was just the novelty of seeing a bow tie in steerage that was causing strangers to appear so interested in us. All too soon, I had the uncomfortable realization that the people in our waiting area were beginning to assume that we were newlyweds. Worse, Patty, who was no stranger to the ways of matrimony, was actively encouraging this fraud. By the time this was all clear to me, there was nothing I could do short of announcing, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but my dear friend, who is otherwise a lovely woman, has only the most casual acquaintance with honesty. So I smiled wanly while Patty explained to inquisitive travelers that our wedding bands were away being sized. A bit of chicanery so clumsy that for a moment I felt sorry for Patty for leaping into the waters of deceit when it was clear her skills in that area were so underdeveloped. This apparently mattered to no one. We couldn't pose for enough photographs or receive enough warm wishes, and since our flight was delayed, and more than once, there was plenty of time for both. 
Mind you, with the flight being delayed, we now add the element of Patty being on her cell phone, repeatedly calling the classmate awaiting her in Long Beach to let her know that she was running late and that said classmate should go ahead to the reunion and Patty would get there when she got there. These conversations were not delivered in quiet tones or code, or even Pig Latin, but people still persisted in believing that we had joined the ranks of the wed. For my part, I had run out of patience and settled into an attitude of resigned scandalization at Patty's impertinence. One would have thought that the most casual observer would surmise, if nothing else, that Patty had married a peevish man and a bad traveler and that the marriage was doomed. But this was not the case at all. It clearly was not what they wanted to see. Or perhaps this is what new grooms all look like. Or, most likely, nobody pays a bit of attention to a groom anyway. When the time finally came to board, the high number on our southwest boarding pass was waved away. Step to the front of the line, happy newlyweds. And so it went through the flight. There was, of course, the announcement over the intercom that we have a new couple aboard, followed by the sort of alcohol-fueled applause indigenous to Vegas flights. The adorably boyish flight attendant smartly attired in his khaki shorts, and doing a fine job of filling out his polo shirt, kept running free drinks to us. It seemed impolitic to ask his number, considering, but I was rather curious as to just how far he'd be willing to extend his goodwill. I thought I had an ally in the older woman sitting directly across from us. She had been privy to all of Patty's phone conversations, and it was clearly having none of it. I felt so bad at being party to such a transparent hoax, I couldn't even meet the woman's eyes. But after landing, as we got up to leave the plane, she grudgingly offered her congratulations and hopes for a glorious future. So Patty went off to her reunion, and I went home to my boyfriend. But for that period of three hours, I felt what it was like to be accepted as one who was playing the game and following the rules. And my, what a big, warm, hearty handshake that was. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. And catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And a reminder, masks, social distancing, hand washing, and sanitizing precautions were all taken in the production of this show. Be careful out there. Next week... We premiere a Lambda Literary Book Club meeting with guest Scott Heim. So read his novel, Mysterious Skin. Or at least watch the Greg Araki movie version this week. We'll also celebrate the 40-year anniversary of the Violet Quill Club by revisiting interviews with the living VQ members, Andrew Holleran, Felice Picano, and Edmund White. Good night. My mama told me when I was young She put my lipstick on In the class of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause you made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far
Listen to me when I say 